<laughs> I'm sorry. I, it, there's a few things. Was there a cat in that? Okay, there was. Dave, thanks for reading. It's uh, very, very helpfully read. Thank you. It, uh, how about I pray? <laughs> um, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do thank you for your word and we uh, thank you for brothers and sisters who... Uh, um, the McMinimis who have stood so firm for you over so many years. We thank you for the encouragement they are to us. Uh, thank you for the love of the scriptures and pray please that you would um, let your word dwell amongst us richly this morning as we reflect on it together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may or may not have heard that uh, the government has brought in a new list of restrictions on meetings and uh, they're tighter. They're a tighter definition of what 100 includes. So we'd been operating for the last few weeks. In fact, a month ago or so, it was opening up to 300 uh, that you could have in a, in a large building like ours. Um, then they brought it down to 100, but allowed uh, kids and uh, volunteers and so on. But this, uh, on Friday, they brought in tighter restrictions, which means that we can only have 100 in total uh, with a very minimal allowance for staff and we can only have it 100 on the whole site. Up until yesterday or a couple of days ago, it was two buildings, 100 in each. These restrictions are very significant and now we can only have one person sing. Uh, we can't have more than one person singing, even on the stage. We weren't able to sing at all in the congregation, but uh, now only one person. Um, now, that is, they are very tight restrictions. And how do we respond to that? How do we respond as a church? Are we required to obey them? Or as a church, are we only required to answer to our Lord Jesus Christ? And so are we free, therefore, from our obligations to the government? We can listen if we want, uh, but we're not required to obey. We can choose to do what we want to do. How are we to respond to the government and their restrictions? Um, now, I'd be surprised if you weren't unaware of that question that's rolling around the place. It applies to us massively. It's a live one. That is, there are many amongst us and many in the Christian community more broadly who think the answer is a fairly straightforward one, but they think the answer is straightforward in opposite directions. So there are many uh, fine, wonderful Christians who are saying, we just obey the government. That's what we do. Christians obey the government. And whatever they call on us to do, we'll obey, we'll fit in. They think there's no question here. They say, we do, it's simple. But there are other Christians, fine, wonderful, godly men and women, who think exactly the opposite, <laughs> who, who are sure that to do that, to obey the government, is to sell out to the Lordship of Christ. We are ruled by the Lord and we obey him and we have our obligation to him uh, and to submit to the government on this or anything else uh, is to fail to submit to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's treasonous against him. And so for them, it's a very simple issue in the opposite direction. Now, what do you do when Christians disagree? Where do you go? How do you work out the answer? Well, you don't just go to your gut feeling. Some of us by personality are compliant. Some of us by personality are aggressive and conflictual. And you don't just operate with what you feel you ought to. You don't go to the gut because you'll end up reflecting your personality. Um, where do you go? Well, you, you pause and you take care to listen to what God says. 
Well, that's a good answer. Let me listen to what God says about this issue and get his answer on it. But where do I go to find God's answer on it? Well, you go to the Spirit-inspired Word of God, the Scriptures. And providentially, the Word of God brings us to a section of the Scriptures today that records some of the most important words written on this topic. And I feel like I don't want to over-exaggerate, but I'm inclined, I think, to uh, the words spoken by Jesus in this particular part of the Bible have, and here's where I'm inclined to over-exaggerate, but I think they've changed the Western world. They've created Western democracies. That we, the cultures that we live in are shaped by this sentence that was uttered 2,000 years ago. This sentence is why we don't live in an Islamic kind of theocracy. Uh, it, it's quite profound that we have our cultures and it trades on these words. Now, there'll be words that you may well be familiar with. Whether you've read the Bible much or little, you probably will have heard these words in all kinds of different cultural contexts. Um, he says them, uh, give back to Caesar what is Caesar, chapter 22, verse 21, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. That's a very simple sentence. Uh, and if you were here with us, I'd love just to do a quick survey and see who has heard those words. I think many people who have not even involved in Christian uh, churches would have heard those words. It's very much part of our world. It has shaped our Western dem democratic societies. Now, my plan is to dig into that statement and draw out what it means for our current situation. Uh, do we obey the government or not? How do we relate as a church to the government? How do we relate as Christians to the government? Um, but I want to do two other things. I want to show that it has, that statement has a far deeper relevance than just a person's attitude to the government. Jesus is dealing with and, and actually brings to the fore a far larger issue, which is the issue of the whole orientation of your life. It's wonderful. What he says here is quite remarkable and extraordinary. And related to that, the place Jesus has in your life. All of this in one sentence, Jesus captures up. It's quite extraordinary. You see, this isn't just a random lump of teaching by Jesus. As he, it's not like he's just roaming around and has a list of topics that he wants to cover and he, oh, I haven't yet got to the church-state topic. Let me hit that one. This is not just a random topic that Jesus is rolling through. He's responding to attacks by powerful religious leaders in the heart of his nation, Jerusalem, in the capital city. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Herodians, the Sadducees, these are all religious leaders of various parties in uh, Israel who are coming to Jesus to push him around. This is the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, uh, we're probably now on the Tuesday, uh, just a few days before the Friday, of course, when he's crucified. This is only a few days left to live and he knows he's going to die in a few days' time. He's moving towards that, in fact. Um, and what we have now is that the leaders of Israel have come, verse 15 of chapter 22, to trap him. Uh, the, the leaders are coming at him. In fact, Matthew records it, so does Mark and Luke, the other accounts of Jesus' life, um, that uh, they are determined to undo him. And they bring to him this topic uh, of paying taxes. That's just one, only one of them. Because they also, in verse 23, bring the issue of uh, the Sadducees bring the question of who a woman is married to in the resurrection because they want to challenge Jesus over the resurrection. Another leader, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus to question him over the greatest commandment in the scriptures. There's a series of, of, of strong attacks, 
softer attacks in the context of these last few days of Jesus of life. But notice this, each time this attack comes, the question comes, he responds to it. And that's where we get our teaching. But he responds to it in such a way every time that look verse 21, chapter 22, um, I'm sorry, verse 22, how the crowds respond. When they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away. They asked him a question to undo him. We'll see this in a moment. Jesus responds in such an, a clever, insightful, wise way that they are amazed. When they attack him over the marriage issue and the resurrection, when the crowds, verse 33, heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You get that softer kind of address to Jesus, uh, which leads to Jesus then in verse 41, talking about a, a complicated question from the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 110 there. But verse 46, the response to Jesus at that point is, no one could say a word in reply. From that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Because this is a man among men. This passage is dealing with far larger issues than just our attitude to the government, though we're going to deal with that topic. It touches on our total life orientation. What do we do with this man, Jesus? He's the one who claims to be God come amongst us, our Lord, our King, our ruler, which is a radical claim. But here's the thing, at every step in his life, he shows the truth of that claim. If God were to take on flesh and move amongst humans, what would he look like? Jesus. At every point. Wise, insightful. Depth of character, integrity, strength, courage, love, grace, mercy, gentleness, power. <laughs> it's all there. And so that's the bigger point here. What will you do with this man, Jesus? We'll come back to that towards the end. Because I first now want to look at this particular issue, the attitude that Jesus creates towards government. Jesus makes that statement there in uh, chapter 22, verse 21. So give to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now let me put that in context. See if we can make sense of it and apply it to ourselves. Jesus has just previously um, rolled a hand grenade down the aisle in Jerusalem and uh, among the religious leaders blown them to bits, which is, in a, he did it in a non-aggressive way. It's a very violent image as I think about it, isn't it? But uh, uh, Jesus deliberately provokes the religious leaders. We saw that last week. He, he calls them out. And the consequence of that is chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out had laid plans to trap him in his words they were now now no longer at all interested in finding out the truth they were just wanting to trap him they've been stirred and provoked and now they're hotly against him and so they send verse 16 their disciples to him with the herodians and they bring this question with a little preamble, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others. This is puffing up and making them look respectable and good. But here's their question. What's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? 
There's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And that brings forth Jesus' response. Now, to understand his response, just unpack a couple of pieces here. First thing, the group that comes to Jesus is a coalition between the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, we hear that and kind of go, oh, yes, yeah, so what? Just two groups of people. No, no, no. The, the, these two groups, that they come together is quite a significant thing in the ancient world. Um, let me tell you who they are. Uh, the Pharisees are over against the government of the day. They're the staunch, courageous religious leaders who won't kowtow to other authorities. They're the independent church leaders who don't answer to anyone but God alone. Rome is evil and must be resisted at every point. The Erodians, on the other hand, are in bed with the government. Uh, they're the followers of Herod, who was ruling at that time. And they're the group that supported the government. Now, these two groups didn't get on with each other. They despised each other. And yet here they are teaming up against Jesus, which says something about the hostility they have towards Jesus. But when there's a, an enemy greater than their own hostility, they're prepared to come together. There's the first thing. Who are these Herodians and Pharisees that come to ask the question? The second thing is note the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, how do you think the Pharisees would answer that question? Never. It's a matter of treason to Israel to be supporting the oppressive government over us. It would be a betraying God's rule to support a pagan ruler. And the coin, in fact, that uh, would have paid taxes would have had an inscription on it that talked about the Caesar, the, the current emperor, as being the son of God. It would be a claim to some kind of divinity. And so many of the Pharisees and uh, Jewish people saw that as a form of idolatry. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. How would the Herodians have answered the question, should we pay tax to Caesar? They would have said, yes, certainly. They're our rulers, we must obey and give. Now you can see immediately the application to us, I hope. Some Christians are like Pharisees, in the best sense. I don't mean in the hypocritical sense, but in the best sense, they're like Pharisees. Uh, God rules over us, he rules his church. We give no submission to the government, we just owe allegiance to God. But some are like Herodians. The government says we should respond and obey and comply. Now, which group does Jesus support? And that's actually the reason for the question, and that's why these two groups came, because they knew they, they were hoping to trap Jesus and put him on the horns of a dilemma. If he, if he agrees with the Pharisees, uh, then the people will love him, the Pharisees will support him, but the Herodians will call out treason, and get the Roman authorities to kill him, take him away, you see. So you make an enemy of the Herodians and the ruling party. But if he agrees with the Herodians, yes, we should pay taxes, then the Pharisees will bring the crowds against him, saying, you don't stand for Israel or for our God. Um, which do you do? Now, can you see again the tensions today? Do we obey the restrictions? Some amongst our Western Christian world are saying that if churches obey these restrictions, we are selling out to the world. 
We are shameful and weak. We are like the Erodians. Some are saying that if we, um, we ought to disobey and continue to meet without masks or social distancing, and that would make us heroes who are standing for Christ, standing for God and courageous. Now in all of that, what does Jesus say? Well, his answer is profound. It's deep. And it's, I don't think this is too much to say, it is world changing. It, the, our world, the world we live in is because of this statement. First thing to note, Jesus sees through their actions. There, verse 18, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Um, I just say again, you cannot hide from Jesus. Beware this man. Who do you think he is? But anyway, Jesus goes on and says, show me a coin. Verse 19, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked, whose image is this and whose inscription? Notice that language, whose, whose image is this? An important little word, very deliberate word that Jesus uses. Whose image is on it? Like our coin has the image of the queen, whose image is on it? Well, it had the head of the Caesar, the current ruler. And so Jesus then says, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, the crowds are amazed, verse 30, 22. Well, when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. And as I say, it's sown the seeds of a total new order of religious life. It created, and here we, I'm going to take you down into some political theory. Here we go. It created separation between church and state. It created a separation between religious life and secular life. Quite profoundly. You see, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar is a pagan ruler. He thought of himself as divine, which meant he was over against God, the true God. He believed himself to be someone special like that, which meant he was an enemy of Christ. But Jesus teaches that the truly spiritual person, the God-honoring person, has an obligation to even Caesar, even though they're not Christian or Jewish. Now that in its context is radical. But Jesus does it on the basis of the image. Whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription? Caesar's image is on the coin. Well, says Jesus, it's his coin. Give to him what's his. Give Caesar what you owe. Now, what do you owe, Jewish person? You owe at least taxes. Well, how so? And here, think with me about governments and society and life for a moment. You see, when the person lives in their particular corner of an empire they rely on the good that the empire brings we keep imagining that we can be self-made people who can just drop out and live since subsistence farming and that's surely better for the environment and better for our life um, but <laughs> subsistence farming is impoverished if you go that path you will be impoverished. Every society that's based entirely on is a very impoverished world where health outcomes are very poor, 
where the opportunity to actually grow and develop and, and, and make is, is completely cut off. Wealth is only possible where trade across peoples is possible. And trade across peoples is only possible. And development of a business is only possible in a context where safety and security and health is secured. That's only possible if there's a system of law that's policed. It's only possible if legal agreements are honoured and defended in the courts so that I can enter into trade agreements and they be kept. So that I can build up a business or build up my own house and, it's, and not have it taken from me, not stolen. I have to have a police force to stop that happening. And to, and to develop wealth, I need transport. I need to be able to take goods to different places and do it peacefully without bandits on the roads. All of these things are necessary to produce a healthy society. Uh, health outcomes. Do, do, do you know, to, to create a hospital and medical research so that cancer can be dealt with needs a society with enough resource to pull it together to provide the training for medical things and all of the other infrastructure to make it possible for health to be so that babies don't die in infancy. All of these are part and parcel of a communal, community thing that is done. Jew, this coin that you have is minted by the Roman government who provides the peace of Rome that you exist in, which makes it possible for you to trade and develop and grow and produce wealth and have peace and safety. So give them what you owe. Christian, we take so much for granted. It was interesting and tragic and kind of funny in the last six weeks or so when, did you see the Portland riots near Seattle there where um, they set up a group of people, you, you know what's happening in the States at the moment as it is around the world, the great protest against abusive police, police practices. And um, there was a group of uh, very highly um, motivated protesters who set up a zone within um, near Seattle there and they called it CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Autonomous, they broke free from America. And a bunch of blocks of this city were set aside to be an independent state um, where they can escape from police abuse and brutality and force and all the terrible things of the Trump administration and, um, and, and have a beautiful, free, uh, self-sufficient society. That was the intention. And they gathered together and began to sleep in sleeping bags and so on in this bunch of blocks in Seattle. And, um, uh, and very soon, within a couple of days, armed men were patrolling the streets of Chaz. Someone asked them about these armed men. I thought you're against the police. You want to get rid of police. Uh, these are not police. They're just making sure things are safe. Uh, <laughs> well, isn't that what the police are? And then they built a wall around Chaz uh, and set up border guards with guns, just like the Trump administration's done down south, which they hate. When challenged about this, they said, well, you need to protect who's coming in and who's going out. Otherwise, we can't have an integrity to our... Exactly. <laughs> now, what happened when someone was injured? Well, they called out of Chaz to get the ambulance to come because they didn't have enough resources to actually manage them. So they had to rely on America that they're broken free from. Really, America should have said, we'll charge you for it. 
Friends, it really was a helpful insight into the nature of society that we live in, that so many things that happen around us that we take for granted are necessary for our own personal health and safety and wealth creation and growth and enjoyment of life and you know road systems and health systems and education systems and police force and justice the courts the media all of these things are just are necessary for us to grow and develop together and therefore we benefit from all of that and Jesus says pay the government what you owe Pay the rulers what you owe them. You owe them more than you realise. But, he then says, give to God what is God's. What belongs to God? Well, he, he hasn't said, there's a piece that he's not said, but it's hanging in the air. And it's why the people in verse 32 swoon over his teaching. The Jews, they cut their teeth on the book of Genesis. Uh, that was their mother's milk, that God is the creator of every human, uh, and repeated through the account of God's creation of humans, Adam and Eve, man and woman, is this statement that God created us in his image. We are his image bearers. A human is made. In God's image. A human has God's image written deep into their very being. The coin has the image of Caesar on it. But a human has God's image stamped all over his whole life, her whole life. What therefore is owed to God? Whose image is on the coin will pay Caesar what is owed? Because the image is there, you owe him what's his. Give God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Everything. Because the image of God is not just on an external coin. The image of God is on our very being. We have been given all that we have by God. His fingerprints are all over our life. Remember last week we looked at the uh, tenants and the parable of the tenants where a landowner gave a group of people everything for their life and subsistence and their health and their enjoyment and their safety and asked for rent, which they refused to give and the horror that that was. Just to repeat again, we owe the Lord God everything. He has given us life, breath and everything else. And that Lord God comes in the person of his son, Jesus, to make himself known to us which is a larger point I'll come back to. Let me try and pull some of this together. That statement of Jesus, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. That whole thing together, do you see what Jesus has done? He's done two things. He has freed us and complicated us. He has freed us as, as a society and he's complicated our lives massively. Let me explain what I mean. By that statement, he has freed us to have Western democracies. He has removed the need for communities to be ruled by religious leaders. Almost all, I, I mean, I don't want to claim too much. I think it's the case that almost all previous states and governments were theocracies of a kind. Certainly the Jewish state was, where politics and religion were completely united together. 
the political rulers were the religious leaders and the political leaders were bringing in the religious rule into society. Jesus comes into that and says, now that's no longer necessary. In a fallen world, when religion is the government of the day, it becomes oppressive. Just look at Islamic countries. Their rule intrudes not just into our actions and what we do, but into our thought life and how we believe and what, we, what our conscience says. Because their concern isn't just for peace and safety, but for the religion to be shaping our lives. That is dreadfully oppressive in a fallen world. If our country was ruled as a Christian country, we would need to require Christian behaviour to honour God. And that would make the government intrude on our thought life and our attitudes. We need to have Christians in Parliament, yes. We need our government to rule us with wisdom, which often means it ought to be biblical thought. But not as a government seeking to make Australia a Christian society. Jesus says by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar, he's saying to the Jewish person, you have, it's okay to be ruled by someone who's opposed to your religious convictions. And you still owe an obligation to them. You still owe Caesar. You can give to a pagan ruler over you and still be true to God. Because, here it is, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Let me dive a little bit into political theory again here for you for a moment. You can have a snooze if you want, but Christians have reflected on all of this for many centuries. And it's led to an idea that's been called the two kingdoms idea. The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And they are not the same thing in Christian thought. at least not in this age one day they will be but in this age the kingdom of god is different to the kingdom of man and you can owe obligations to the king of the kingdom of man and obligations to god though those things are different god's kingdom jesus's kingdom is not of this world it isn't located in any government anywhere it's not located in any human rule it is a spiritual kingdom that one day will be brought in when Christ returns and will be ushered into a new creation where God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, in the new creation, not here. We live today in Babylon. As the Jews lived in exile in Babylon under a foreign ruler, still committed to their God, but in a foreign country, we live today under the rule of God in a foreign country the kingdom of man. We serve it for its good, as the Jews did in Babylon. But we don't seek to impose Christianity over our country and make it our government. You see, Jesus frees us to have governments and secular societies that give room for all people, Christian and non-Christian, different religions to live together and work together. That is a great liberation that's brought about the kind of countries we live in. It's freed us, but it's complicated us. It's complicated our life greatly because God's person now has two obligations. 
we have an obligation in two directions and it's not simple God's person now has an obligation to Caesar to give to Caesar the state government the secular government what is owed them and a great deal is owed to them we can't say now on the basis of Jesus teaching we can't say our only obligation is to Christ and we can dismiss any authority of the kingdom of man we can't do that because of this teaching and Romans 13 where to submit to governing authorities the church is not isolated from the world around us Christians aren't separated out to live under God with no obligations in the realm of man um, we are not a secret community now now the heavenly church is the heavenly invisible church uh, owes its own ob only obligation to Christ in heaven but that invisible heavenly assembly located visibly on earth is full of people whose citizenship is still in this world and in the kingdom of God we are citizens of two kingdoms now it's fine when the kingdom of the world doesn't require much of us we don't even notice it or when it requires things of us that are easy to justify even as Christians but what about when it intrudes into our private lives what about when the kingdom of the world intrudes into how we perceive things and think things what about when it's in conflict with God's rule the kingdom of God it is complicated you see the, the church isn't isolated the visible church the community of people who are citizens of the world we don't suddenly disappear out of citizenship to the world when we come into church together we, we aren't a private secret organization who has no obligation you see, see we we must obey the government with respect to child protection laws and that's a good thing we, we, you know we must pay regard to the government when we build a building we can't just because we're the church under the rule of Christ we can't just build how we like we have to obey the government we, we have to present our accounts and have financial management that's controlled and ordered by the government we're not just a secret society we have obligations and responsibilities to the society we're in because we're citizens of this world and the kingdom of God do you see we can't just say Christ is our Lord we obey him only Jesus won't allow that the rest of the New Testament won't allow that so what about health let me apply it to that we owe our secular society our health you are not alone you use the health system to gain your health to find health to get the foods that it actually sets up through its safe transport business systems there's so many ways in which we rely on the secular society for our health and we are part of the whole system of secular society that aids and helps health um, we owe a contribution to that community um, you see when a pandemic comes through we can't decide as a church community that we don't care what's happening out there we're going to do our own thing because what we do touches the community around us if we pay no attention to restricting the flow of the virus it won't just impact us I mean if it did I think I'd say go for it if that's what you want to do and go off to your own little isolated nimbin and 
not social distance, then go for it and see what happens. But our failure to engage and participate in the broader community things won't just impact us, it will impact each of us, which will then impact the next people out. It'll impact the society around us. We are part of the citizenship of this world. We are in two kingdoms. We owe our government participation in their concerns to guard the safety of our society. So as a church, we can't just walk away and act independently. But it is complicated. What if the government requires something that's against the kingdom and rule of God? He is our Lord. He is the higher Lord. We obey him. You remember the apostles when they were preaching and they were told not to preach and they said, will we obey you or man or will we obey God? We have to obey God. And that's finally where we must be as well. But even there, it's not simple. In Aaron Affair, they won't let us preach the gospel. Do we go to Aaron Affair and say, we've got to obey God, not you, and so we're going to preach in Aaron Affair? No, it's a private owned plot of land. Uh, we've got to respect private ownership. Now, if they required us everywhere to not preach the gospel, then we, we'd have to disobey. But they haven't done that. Now, the government is saying we can't meet in groups greater than 100. Do we say you are stopping us meeting as church, so we have to disobey? No, they're not stopping us meeting as church. They're just stopping us meeting in the kind of church we once had. We can't simply come to them and say, unless you let us meet the way we've always met in groups of a thousand, we will disobey you. No, no, they've not stopped us meeting as church. The house church in China has managed to meet as a church. Even though it can't meet in large groups, we can still meet. Now, it's complicated further because there may be an occasion where in a very crisis time they'll stop us being able to meet in even groups of that size which happened for a period of time and I think for martial law in extreme circumstances we would follow that guidance for a period of time until it began to emerge that there was more going on than just health orders. Great care needs to be taken. Let me finish and apply this more properly. The political theory is important and I hope, <laughs> I hope you found some of it helpful because we do need to, I, I don't just want us to react from gut and do what Christians do as, but to think it through and come back to the Bible and wrestle with all of these things and be thoughtful Christians. So wrestle with these things. But switch back on because there are larger spiritual issues at play here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. We carry his image. We are only here because he has given us the gift of life and everything. And yet we've failed at it. Which is why Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, stirring up the religious leaders because he must have them crucify him. Because it's only by him dying in our place to pay our debt, our spiritual debt, 
that means it's possible for us to be reconciled with God. We cannot, by our efforts, earn our way to God. We have fallen too far. We need a saviour who brings forgiveness. And praise God that Lord God, our God, entered into our world and became one of us, entered into the conflict with the religious leaders and let them take him to the cross to be crucified, that he might pay for us. What a saviour. Let me finish, though, by saying this. We therefore owe God double. I remember an old movie. Let me try and illustrate this. I remember a very old movie. I can't remember the name of it now. It's not important, but it was, a, uh, it was set underwater, massive sub, a couple of miles down, and there was some kind of creature they were battling from memory. It's a long time ago. There was one particular scene where a man and a woman were in a small, uh, kind of smaller submersible that came out from the main complex a long way away, two miles down. It broke down and they were running out of air. The, the ship was filling up with water. Uh, it was too far to swim back, uh, holding their breath. And they had one survival suit in this small submersible. And it was one of those ones you couldn't share air. So only one of them could wear it. It meant the other one would die. Now, this man and woman who were in this submersible were once married, but he had failed in the marriage and there was estrangement. She was rightly angry at him. He'd been a pig and so on. But here's what she said, my memory. She said, um, you're the far better swimmer. The only chance one of us has to get back is you getting back. I'll give you the dive suit. And so after arguing back and forward, he puts on the dive suit and the water fills up the submersible. He holds her in his arms and watches her start to drown and watches her as she breathes her last and dies in her arms so that he might live. Now he then swims like crazy and brings her back to the main ship and gives her mouth to mouth and she comes back to life again. But that's Hollywood, right? It's a crazy thing. But here's the deal. Imagine if she'd, he dragged her back to the main ship, dumped her on the side and said, ah, oh, look at the time. State of origin's on. I'll come back to this later. Let's just leave it. I'll go and get something to eat. How would you feel about a man like that? Who had had a woman give her life for him, treating her with such contempt. I'd throw him back in the water without a suit, with a rock. Here's the deal. God has given us his image. It's written all over us. We owe him everything. But that same God came and gave his life. In the scriptures, in a few pages' time, you can see him on a cross, breathe his last and die for us. We owe him because he gave us life. We double owe him because he gave us his life. You know, you may choose to ignore God for all kinds of reasons, but to ignore him in light of the sacrifice he's paid for us makes us guilty in a way that's far more serious. But praise God we have this God who has made a way back for even us. Let me pray. Our great God, we do thank you for the extraordinary love you have displayed for us. You have made us and put your image on us.
you have uniquely bestowed on us the privilege of being your image bearers we owe you but even though we've failed you have come in and given your life for us that we might be brought back to the full rights of sons and daughters we praise you for your love and the great sacrifice you have made pray you'd help us appreciate what we owe and out of gladness and gratitude that we might give ourselves to you we ask in Jesus' name amen